When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. There's so much to cover that we're going to defer our new segment to next episode, including our Napoli Femminile and Serie B reviews. On today's episode, we'll review Napoli's win over Atalanta in Part 1. In Part 2, we'll recap the rest of the Match Day 4 action. And in Part 3, we'll preview Napoli's Europa League fixture on Thursday against AZ Alkmaar. So getting right into it, Napoli opened the fourth round on Saturday against Atalanta. Here are the highlights. Crowds return on this small scale. It's good to hear anything as we get underway. Oh, it's beautifully done. Vintage Napoli, this! Piving Lozano! I always feel with Atalanta as if something is round the corner, but they are allowed to play badly. They do often throw in, or occasionally throw in, performances like this. Here's Lozano. Merton's in support, but he doesn't need it. It's turning into the Hiving Lozano show! Threats coming from everywhere from this excellent Napoli. Opens up now for Politano! Three goals in the opening half hour! It is a stunner at the San Paolo! And Atalanta have been ripped to shreds by Gattuso's Napoli. Politano and Lozano are causing absolute havoc on both sides and that man in your picture is causing a lot of havoc in the in the central area for those defenders here he goes again Victor Osimhen lining one up it took a long long time 
Victor Osimhen has his first Napoli goal. And look how popular it is. Their new superstar finally breaks his duck. Give me a bit of that with the two of well, there's the half-time whistle. What an extraordinary half that was. The team that has scored four at least in every game so far and have been lauded for doing so, have conceded four here. And Dibello gets us back underway. Good win there by Romero. And Lammers in behind. The flag has stayed down for the time being. And Lammers does score for Atalanta. His second goal for them, he took it exceptionally well. Well, closing seconds of a, a rousing early afternoon at the Stadio San Paolo. Napoli with one of their best performances in recent years. Best 45 minutes, certainly. As you heard, Napoli won 4-1 on goals from Lozano, who scored a brace, Politano and Victor Osimhen. Atalanta's lone goal was scored by Sam Lammers. So let's start with the lineups. As usual, Gasparini lined up in his 3-5-2 with Marco Sportiello in goal. Christian Romero started at centre-back and Jose Luis Palomino started at centre-left, as we expected. Rafael Toloi was fit to play, so he started over Brad Jim City on the right. In the midfield, Robin Gozin started on the left and Fabio De Pauli got a surprise start over Hans Hattabor on the right. Martin Darun and Mario Pasolic started in the middle of the field. Up top, Josip Ilicic made his first appearance since July 11th alongside Papu Gomez and behind Duvan Zapata. For Napoli, Gattuso went back to the 4-2-3-1 with essentially the same lineup that we were expecting. David Ospina started in goal. Elcid Kisai, Kaldu Koulibaly, Kostas Manolas and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at the back. Koulibaly wore the captain's armband in Insigne's absence. The one question was who would start in the double pivot with Fabian Ruiz. That turned out to be Timoi Bakayoko, but he was replaced by Lobotka in the second half. Matteo Politano and Chucky Lozano played on the wings, and Dries Mertens started at the 10 behind Victor Osimhen. With Insignia and Elmas not in the lineup, Gattuso had to get creative with his subs. First, he removed Politano, so he shifted Lozano to the right wing and brought in Fauzi Gulam, who's normally a left back, to play on the left wing. Then later, he did the same on the right side. He took out Mertens and shifted Lozano to the number 10 so he could bring in Kevin Malqui, who's normally a right back, to play on the right wing. Even though this was a great team win, I do want to talk about a few individual performances first, starting with the wingers. Lozano and Politano both took advantage of the opportunity to play together with the Insignia and Almas out. It didn't take long for the wingers to link up. In the 10th minute, Politano cut into his favored left foot and played in the cross. Lozano took one touch before volleying just wide of the mark. Only a few minutes later, Lozano came close again. Once again, Politano played the cross to the back post. Lozano got up to win the header over Rafael Toloi, who looked rather lost on the play. Lozano connected fully, but just missed the target, but that was a sign of things to come. The two combined for three goals in the first half. Watching live, the first goal seemed a bit lucky after how long it took for the ball to cross the line, but Lozano put himself in a position to score behind the Atalanta defenders, and Sportiello got a hand on the ball, so Lozano was just reacting to the deflection. On a bang-bang play like that, it's hard enough to make contact, let alone to direct the ball on goal. The second goal was just a beautiful strike from Lozano, but from the fact that he took the shot and from the quality of the shot, you can tell that his confidence is up. That was the kind of goal you would expect from Papu Gomez. He bent the shot just inside the far post, and this shot was next to impossible to stop. Thankfully, he scored because if he didn't, he did have Mertens open on the overlap. 
The third goal started and ended with Politano. He intercepted Gozin's pass intended for Zapata in his own half. 11 passes later, the ball was back on his feet, exactly where he wants to be on the pitch, which is on the right side with space to cut into the middle. The finish was sublime. It was similar to the winner he scored against Udinese last season. Politano seems to be growing in confidence as well. I was a little surprised that Lozano played the full 90 given our winger situation and with two matches only five days apart. There have been indications that Insigne may be fit to play on Thursday. He completed the full training session on Monday. We'll see if Elmas has recovered from COVID by then, but even if he has, he would only provide an option off the bench. It could be that Gattuso left Lozano in to try to complete the tripleta and also to reward him for the strong match, but I'm not sure that would be the best time to do it. Next, let's talk about Victor Osimhen, who had another excellent performance. He has become an integral part of this attack to the point where he must start in big matches. Osimhen created a ton of problems for Atalanta's back line. We'll get to Gary Bertel's comments a bit later, but one thing he got right was that Osimhen's runs into the channels pulled Atalanta's center backs into uncomfortable areas. He probably could have scored earlier in the match, but the service wasn't great. I don't know if you noticed, but in the opening quarter, Napoli's passing all around was just a bit off. There was one play where Mertens had Osman open on the right side of the box, and if he plays the ball in front of Osman, he has an excellent scoring opportunity, but the pass is behind him and nothing comes of it. Osman was involved in three of the four goals, even if not directly. On the first goal, if Sportiello doesn't get a hand on the cross, Osman is there for the tap-in. On the second goal, the reason the ball lands for Mertens is because both Palomino and Romero jump on Osman's back, and in the process, the ball fell kindly for Mertens. Thankfully, DiBello played the advantage there. In the 33rd minute, Osman made a nice turn in the box and got a decent shot off, but Sportiello stopped it. A lot of strikers looking for their first goal would probably be pretty frustrated, but he just had a huge smile on his face. He just looks like he's having so much fun out there, so you just knew his goal would come, and of course it did come just before the break. Ospina played the long ball to Osman, who was the target of just about every long ball. Romero mistimed his jump, but Osman did really well to take it down with his chest, he only needed two touches after that, one to set up the shot and another to put it in the back of the goal. Osman did two things after scoring. First, he ran straight to Mr. Gattuso and gave him a hug. And second, he held up a t-shirt to the camera that said, hashtag stop police brutality in Nigeria. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Napoli's attack, which was phenomenal, but it was certainly helped by some pretty poor defending. Atalanta's backline really struggled to contain Osman which has become a common theme for most teams this season against Napoli. On the first goal, both Osman and Lozano got behind Atalanta's back line of Romero, Toloi, and De Pauli. On the second goal, I mentioned that Romero and Palomino both went up for the ball and collided with each other. On the third goal, Politano was given way too much space, no one closed him down. And on the fourth goal, Romero completely mistimed his jump. Speaking of Romero, I don't know how he wasn't shown a yellow card in this match. He body-checked Mertens away from the ball in the first half, and he caught Osman with his studs up in the second half. I saw a lot of talk from Atalantini about how Raymond Freuler should have been in the starting 11. My understanding is he picked up a knock in Nations League, which is probably why he didn't play. A few quick notes on Napoli's play. I don't know when we last saw a half from Napoli as impressive as the first half of this match, but what was more impressive to me is they're doing it on a consistent basis. We saw it in the second half of the Parma match, and throughout the Genoa match, but especially in the second half of that one. But they were both weaker opponents, so this performance has to be the most impressive. Even Koulibaly was getting into the attack, he looked like a left winger at times, and for a big man, his touch is not bad at all. In the midfield, Bakayoko looked pretty good on his debut, he's incredibly calm on the ball. 
And though Fabian ultimately had a strong match, he made a play in the first half where he tried to clear the ball out from his own corner and gave the ball straight to Atalanta, which gave me flashbacks of the first goal last time we played Atalanta. On the defensive side of the ball, Costas Mano last completely shut down Duvan Zapata. He probably deserved a yellow card for the tackle in the opening minutes of the match. Even if he got one though, I would have been fine with it. I think he was intentionally sending a message with that tackle. In the second half, Napoli dropped into a 4-4-2 when defending to protect the lead. Atalanta didn't have too many goal scoring opportunities. After 13 goals in their first 3 matches, Atalanta were held to only 1 goal in this one. Now they did have a number of key players travel for international duties which may or may not have impacted their play. I don't have a whole lot to say about the goal, I think you just have to give Romero credit for winning the ball in the middle of the field, he just seemed to want it more, and you have to give Sam Lammers credit for the run and the finish, he looks like he's the real deal. Meanwhile Napoli have now scored 12 goals in their 3 matches played on the field, we've also only conceded 1 goal on the field which puts our goal differential on the field at plus 11. Even with the 3 goals on the table, we are tied with Milan for the best goal differential in the league at plus 8. Even though we play more long balls in the 4-2-3-1 than we used to in the 4-3-3, 3 of the 4 goals started with David Ospina. The last thing I'll comment on is color commentary Gary Bertles. He made a couple of comments that showed he doesn't really follow Italian football. First with Napoli dominating the match in the first half, he said that Atalanta have to change their system. If you watch Atalanta regularly, you know that Gasparini does not deviate away from his 3-5-2 no matter what. But the comment that really got people going was in the second half, when he was bemoaning Napoli for sitting back a little too much, and how you would never see Juventus do that. First of all, if you're calling a Napoli match, you probably should avoid comparing us to our biggest rivals in the first place. But even beyond that, Juventus have probably been the most pragmatic club of the last decade. They are exactly the team that would defend a lead. Comparison to Juve aside, there were plenty of people online agreeing that Napoli should have continued to press like they did in the first half. I understand why people would suggest that, but I agree with the approach. With a 4 goal lead, the priorities become defending the lead, avoiding injury, and preserving energy. The last one is especially important considering our lack of winger depth at the moment and our midweek match against Alkmaar in the Europa League. So that's our review of Napoli's win over Atalanta. In part 2, we'll recap the rest of match day 4. Another massive match on Saturday was the Derby della Madonnina, but it really didn't feel like it without fans. It also didn't feel like a proper derby without so many players in the lineups. Inter had six players in isolation after contracting COVID-19, including Alessandro Bastoni, Milan Skriniar, Ashley Young, Raja Nengolan, Roberto Gagliardini, and backup keeper Jonas Radu. Inter were also without Stefano Sensi, who was suspended after that ridiculous play in the Lazio match. Meanwhile, Milan had two positive cases of their own in Leo Duarte and Matteo Gabbia, 
Antti Rebic was also out after dislocating his elbow against Crotone. However, Zlatan Ibrahimovic returned to Milan starting 11 after a long recovery from COVID. With so many players missing, many were questioning whether this match should even be played, but the league sent a pretty clear message with the ruling of the sports judge on the Napoli case as we covered last episode, which is that the rules will be strictly enforced. Milan won 2-1 on a brace from who else but now 39-year-old Zlatan Ibrahimovic, while Romelo Lukaku scored the lone goal for Inter. Despite the unusual circumstances, this was another classic Milan derby, or at least the first half was. Ibra and Hakan picked up right where they left off. Those two have developed a really nice connection on the pitch. Hakan picked out Ibra's run with a lovely ball in the build-up to the penalty. Hakan's confidence appears to be growing every match. He played a lovely give-and-go with Ibra in the second half with some fancy footwork. I thought both right wingers looked good in this match. For Milan, Alexis Salamakers has to be the starting right winger. He appears to have overtaken Samu Castillejo. He contributes on both ends of the pitch. He tracks back to help defend. And in this match, he made a couple of important blocks. In the attack, he's very quick on the counter. He made a clever run to get past Brozovic to start the counter attack leading to the second Milan goal. In fact, all five Milan players involved in the goal made important plays. The play started with Davide Calabria who made two nice blocks on Alexander Kolarov before finding Salamakers. I mentioned Salamakers turn to spring the counter-attack. Then you had Hakan who played the switch to find Leao. Leao did really well first to shake off D'Ambrosio and then he played a gorgeous low cross to Ibra. And then of course you had Ibra's run and finish. For Inter, one of the more intriguing stories heading into this match was the battle between 21-year-old Ashraf Hakimi and 23-year-old Teo Hernandez. Teo wasn't bad, but I think it's fair to say that Hakimi won this battle. Hakimi plays with real purpose. Early in the match, he made a cut to get past Teo. In fact, I think he nutmegged him, which was way too smooth. Once again, Inter's backline looked a little suspect. Granted, they were without Bastoni and Skriniar, who both play fairly regularly. On the first goal, Ibra exposed the backline, and on the second, Inter had six players back to defend Milan's four-man attack, and yet they still scored. It looked like Brozovic and Barella got a little crossed up on the play which resulted in Ibra being unmarked. The second half wasn't nearly as exciting as the first, there were a lot of fouls on either side which really disrupted the flow of the match. Milan's backline of Cairo, Romagnoli, Calabria and Teo played really well, they blocked a good number of shots. Inter thought they had a chance to equalize in the 73rd minute from the penalty spot, but VAR reviewed the play and called an offside instead. You can never count Inter out of a match like this, in fact I was expecting them to find the equalizer. Lukaku came close twice in extra time including a back heel shot in the dying seconds, but Milan hung on for their first derby win in nearly 5 years. The last time they won the derby was in January 2016. Meanwhile, Juventus missed a huge opportunity to gain some ground, drawing newly promoted Crotone 1-1. Simi scored from the penalty spot for Crotone early in the match. Alvaro Morata scored the equalizer for Juventus. Juventus of course were playing this match without Cristiano Ronaldo. But with the quality and payroll of this Juve squad, there's really no excuse for dropping points here. Federico Chiesa made his debut for Juventus since joining at the end of the transfer window. I was wondering how Pirlo would fit everyone into the lineup. In this match, he used a 3-4-2-1 with Morata as the striker and Kulusevski and Portanova behind him. Chiesa played on the right wing, which is essentially the same place he played for Fiorentina, and where many experts would tell you that he is being used out of position. I assume when Ronaldo returns, Morata would be relegated to the bench. Keza definitely left his mark on this match. He assisted on the goal with a very nice square ball after the other new youngster, Dejan Kulusevski, played him a perfect through ball. Then in the 60th minute, he was shown a straight red card for a challenge on Luca Cigarini. Keza got there a tad late, but on the replay, it did not look like a foul that warranted a red card. If I'm being honest, I thought this call was a bit harsh, 
But as they said in the broadcast, match official Francesco Forno set the tone with the amount of yellow cards he dished out in the first half. For Crotone, I thought Arkadouj Reca had an excellent match. Crotone looked dangerous whenever they switched the play to pick out his runs on the left wing. Luca Cigarini also had a very good match and nearly put Crotone ahead in the 55th minute, but he just tried to be a little bit too precise. Like I said, he also drew the red card on Keza, so just like the Roma match, Juve had to play the final half hour with a man down. Former Napoli player Sebastiano Luperto had a decent match as well and received a lot of praise from his former teammates on social media for it. Morata nearly scored a second shortly after the Chiesa red card. He flicked his header from Klusevski's free kick toward the back post, but it hit the upright and stayed out. Then in the 76th minute, he had a goal overturned by VAR for offside. Obviously, as a Napoli fan, I'm happy with this result, but this was one of those VAR reviews where the line of the defender and the line of the attacker are so close to each other that the margin for error is quite high. Especially on a play like this where the defender's arm is the part of his body close to the line, it was easy to see where Morata was because his heel was on the ground, but the defender's arm is flailing behind him so you don't really know where it is. I wish Serie A did the same thing as the NFL where if the review is inconclusive, the call on the field stands. Juventus really could have used Ronaldo in this match. Again, it's hard to justify dropping points to a newly promoted club and one that most are expecting to be relegated, but these are the situations that Ronaldo seems to excel in. In the other match of the day, Lazio were upset 3-0 by Sampdoria on goals from Fabio Cogliarella, Tommaso Augello, and Mikel Damsgaard. Lazio had a number of players absent for this match. Ciro Immobile was suspended for the red card that he picked up in Lazio's previous match against Inter. He was sorely missed. Felipe Caicedo started in his place. Caicedo, of course, is nowhere near the level of Immobile, but he didn't get much service either. A number of other Lazio players were out due to injury, including Manuel Lazzari, Bastos, Luis Felipe, and Stefan Radu. Despite being without some important wingbacks, Inzaghi still lined up in his usual 3-5-2. Wesley Hutt made his first start since returning to Lazio, and Vedat Murici made his first appearance. He played in the final half an hour. For Sampdoria, Kitabalde made his first appearance and nearly scored moments after stepping on the pitch, but Thomas Strakosha did well to stop him. Left-back Tommaso Algello had an excellent match for Sampdoria. He assisted Quagliarella on the first goal. The run and the cross were both excellent from Algello. Many Laziali were quick to blame Wesley Hutt for losing his man. I think he was partly to blame, but not entirely to blame. You have to give Quagliarella credit first for pulling up to create a bit of space and second for the finish. You also have to look at what the other Lazio players were doing or not doing. Patrick gets caught upfield, so Parolo tracks back to cover for him, but he gives Algello way too much space to play in the cross. Echerbi is marking no one in the box, and even then, Qualiarella and Gaston Ramirez are 2v2 against Hutt and Javon Anderson, and neither Lazio player picks up either of the Sampdoria players. Algello scored a beautiful goal as well. He nearly scored with a cross that ended up on target, but Strakosha pushed it over the bar. On the ensuing corner kick, Yaukin Correa failed to head clear. The ball landed for Algello, and he smashed the ball first time with the outside of his left boot into the bottom corner. 20-year-old Mikel Damsgaard added the third late in the match. Lazio were pretty lackluster in this match. They did create a few chances in the final quarter. Correa had a shot missed the far post, and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic narrowly missed from distance but they could not find the back of the goal on this night. It's one thing to lose to Atalanta, but quite another to lose handily to Sampdoria. The last thing I'll say is this wasn't just a Lazio loss, it was also a Sampdoria win. We have to give Claudio Ranieri and his men a ton of credit for how they played. They were the better side from start to finish, and they fully deserved the three points. 
I want Sampdoria to stay up just so I can see the club president Massimo Ferrero in the crowd. His facial expressions alone are worth the price of admission. Sassuolo and Bologna opened the action on Sunday with a 7-goal thriller. Sassuolo looked a bit sluggish to start the match. I would suggest that could be because their three best players were away on international duty for the last two weeks, but Berardi and Caputo were actually really good in this match. Locatelli didn't have his best match. Meanwhile, Bologna looked very good at the start. Their press forced Sassuolo to play on the counterattack, and their passing was gorgeous as well. Bologna scored two beautiful team goals. On the first, they made four quick one-touch passes to break out of their own half before Palacio squeezed his square ball through to Orsolini in front of the goal. On the second goal, Musa Barrow made an incisive run into the middle of the field before a quick exchange between Palacio, Soriano, and Svanberg, who finished the move. Had it not been for a brilliant strike from Domenico Berardi, Bologna would have taken a comfortable lead into the break. Instead, the first half ended 2-1. The match really opened up in the second half with Sassuolo looking for the equalizer. Bologna had plenty of opportunities on the counterattack. The Bologna press led to the third goal as well. Locatelli conceded possession in a dangerous area to Soriano and he made no mistake on the finish. He did get a bit fortunate that the shot deflected off Gianmarco Ferrari. The match turned in the 62nd minute. Lorenzo De Silvestri fouled Filip Juricic around midfield and stayed down after the collision. So De Silvestri was taken off the pitch for treatment. Immediately from the restart, Sassuolo made a few quick passes and before you knew it, the ball was in the back of the goal. Juricic finished that play which rejuvenated a Sassuolo team who seemed out of it at 3-1. It wasn't long before Francesco Caputo equalized on what was actually a poorly taken corner kick, but Rodrigo Palacios' clearance at the near post was even worse. He popped the ball up behind him in front of his own goal and Caputo was first to react. Moments later, Sassuolo nearly went ahead but Lucas Skorupski made an excellent save on Berardi's diving header. Sassuolo completed the comeback in the 77th minute after some poor defending and some bad luck for Bologna. This one finished 4-3 for Sassuolo who've now collected 10 out of a possible 12 points. That's good enough for second in the table. Meanwhile, Fiorentina played Spezia wearing their red kits. Fiorentina didn't take long to find the back of the goal. It took only a minute and 40 seconds for captain German Petzella to head in the corner in his 100th appearance for Fiorentina. Petzella was left completely unmarked in the box. Cristiano Biraghi doubled their lead only two minutes later and again the defending was poor. Paul Lirola's low cross somehow got through three Spezia defenders and the keeper even Provedal to find an unmarked Biraghi at the far post. He finished into the empty goal from a tight angle. Daniela Verde pulled one back for Spezia. This was their first goal of the season that wasn't scored by Andrei Galabinov. Somehow the long ball from Jacopo Sala got past Martin Casades and he knew that this one was on him. Sala had a strong match at the back too. Moments after the goal he made a huge block on Polirola to prevent what was a sure goal. Spezia picked up the tempo in the second half. Meanwhile Fiorentina seemed to take the pedal off the gas. In the 75th minute Diego Farias equalized only 10 minutes after coming off the bench with a lovely right footed strike into the bottom corner. Jose Callejon made his debut for Fiorentina off the bench, but he wasn't able to make a difference as this one finished 2-2. It seems the countdown is on for Beppe Iacchini to lose his job. Fiorentina were not delivering results even before they sold their star player. I actually thought that Keza had a strong start to the season despite the poor results. I love Jose Callejon, but he cannot fill that void. He's at the tail end of his career and originally did not want to play for another club in Italy, but no one else seemed interested in his services. The one thing that might save Iacchini is Fiorentina would have to pay his salary if they replaced him and obviously during the pandemic everyone's financials are in rough shape.
Moving on, Roma beat Benevento 5-2. Roma got goals from Edin Dzeko, who scored a brace, Pedro, Jordan Vertu from the spot, and Carlos Perez. Benevento's goals came from the two Gianlucas, Caprari and Lapadula. This match was far more competitive than the final score would suggest. Benevento played well and fought hard, but the match got away from them in the end. Gianluca Caprari opened the scoring only 5 minutes into the match. His shot took a wicked deflection off Gianluca Mancini's heel and popped over Mirante and into the back of the goal. After the goal, Benevento had the odd half chance here and there, but otherwise Roma dominated the half. Henrik Mkhitaryan was excellent in this match. He was constantly creating chances. He had a goal disallowed for offside and he assisted both of Dzeko's goals. The pass he made on the first goal was really something else. That was actually a really nice goal altogether. It started with an excellent long ball from Mirante to Mkhitaryan to start the attack. For Napoli fans, it was very similar to the pass that David Ospina made to Insigne in the Coppa Italia semi-final second leg against Inter. Edin Dzeko had an excellent match as well. He is such an important part of this Roma attack. I know Roma need the money, but as far as the play on the field goes, Roma should consider themselves quite lucky that the Milik deal fell through. Dzeko scored a brace in this match, but he does so many other things well. For instance, in the build-up to the Pedro goal, he played a clever little backheel flick in the middle of the pitch to keep the attack going. Roberto Insigne came off the bench at the break for Benevento and looked really good. On a few occasions, he ran right around Roma midfielders and defenders. Gianluca Lapadula had a positive impact on the match as well. Inzaghi had started Gabriele Moncini in Benevento's first three matches, but he didn't do a whole lot. Meanwhile, Lapadula has looked good off the bench, so he got his first start in this match. He scored on the rebound after Mirante stopped his penalty kick. Once again, I don't know why teams insist on playing the ball out from the back, even when they're under pressure. Mirante played the ball to Jordan Vertu at the top of his own box, and Vertu's first touch was far too heavy. Artur Yonita got to the ball first while Vertu was lunging for it and he caught Yonita instead of the ball. Roma scored a penalty of their own. We see these calls being made time and time again. The rule used to be that if a defender or keeper tackles an attacking player but gets the ball first, it's not a foul. That rule was changed a little while ago such that even if the defender or keeper gets to the ball first, if they take out the player as well, it's still a foul. This has led to more penalties when a keeper comes off his line to challenge 1v1, to the point where I think keepers are actually better off not going for the ball, closing down the angle, and daring the attacker to beat them. That made the score 3-2. Credit to Benevento for continuing to press for the equalizer. Unfortunately, they pressed a little too high at times, which is how Roma scored the fourth. Carlos Perez put the icing on the cake with a lovely strike to the top corner to end this match. Cagliari defeated Torino 3-2, Andrea Bellotti scored a brace for Torino and Giao Pedro and Giovanni Simeone scored for Cagliari with a brace from Simeone. On paper, this match might not have been the first choice for the neutral, but it was actually very entertaining. Andrea Bellotti was outstanding, he scored 3 minutes into the first half and 4 minutes into the second half. The first goal was from the penalty spot, this was another penalty like we saw in the Roma Benevento game. The second was a lovely left footed volley across the goal from the left side. The finish was excellent, but the defending was really poor on that goal. I'm not quite sure what Gabriele Zappa was doing on this play. He was supposed to be marking Bellotti, but he seemed completely lost, which is why the ball got to Bellotti in the first place. So Bellotti now has 4 goals in 4 matches, but he does so much more than just score goals. He made a play in the second half where Torino conceded possession, and even though it wasn't specifically Bellotti who conceded it, he sprinted back and made the perfect slide tackle at midfield to win possession back. 
Most Belotti haters only look at his goal total and call him a one-hit wonder because he had one 26-goal season, but to score 16 goals last season and 15 the year before with this group of players around him is pretty impressive, and the stats just don't pick up plays like this tackle. He also came close to equalizing in added time with an acrobatic bicycle kick, but Alessio Cranio got down to make a brilliant save at the near post. Poor defending was a bit of a theme in this match. On Caliotti's first goal, Zappa did well to keep the ball in at the far post. Mergen Voivoda was slow to push up, so he played João Pedro onside to redirect Sebastian Walukowicz's shot in. VAR had a quick look at the goal, but Pedro was clearly played onside by Voivoda. The second Caliotti goal was well worked, but again the defending was atrocious. Nahita Nandes somehow squeezed his square ball through four Torino defenders, Lianco fell on his backside trying to block the pass which left a sitter for Simeone, he's not going to miss very often from there. Then on the final goal, Italy's second keeper Salvatore Sirigu made an uncharacteristic mistake, he went down to intercept a low cross and spilled the ball, Simeone was quick to pounce to score what turned out to be the winner. I felt horrible for Sirigu on this play, match after match this guy makes amazing saves but still suffers a lot of losses because the team in front of him and the tactics managers like Moreno Longo employed were not very good. Here Torino is in a position to pick up a point which is significant for them after they finished so close to relegation last season and the one player who is usually super reliable for them makes this mistake. I felt horrible for Torino as well. They were the far better side in the second half. They still had a few chances to equalize in extra time. I mentioned Belotti's bicycle kick. Simone Verdi had an excellent chance in added time as well but he couldn't keep his shot down. I thought Torino deserved a better result, instead they are now dead last with 0 points through 4 matches. Parma travelled to Udine, or at least what was left of Parma travelled. By the start of the match, 6 Parma players were ruled out due to Covid. It started with 4 players, then the day before the match there was a 5th, and the morning of the match there was a 6th, believed to be Bruno Alves, who was named to the squad but mysteriously not in the lineup. Castro Dermaku was also not in the lineup, he joined Lecce on loan just before the end of the transfer window, so Ricardo Galliolo and Simona Jacoponi started at center back. Udinese were without keeper Juan Musso, who picked up an injury during the international break, so Nicolas started in his place. Udinese won this match 3-2 on goals from Samir, a Jacoponi own goal, and a Puseto late winner. Hernani and Jan Caramo scored for Parma. Early in this match it seemed like it was going to be another Udinese performance where they got plenty of chances but couldn't find the back of the goal. Samir had an open header from in front of the goal and missed the target. Okaka was 1v1 with Sepp in the 18th minute and shot straight at the keeper. Gaston Brugman was just casually tracking back on that counterattack. Parma didn't create much in the opening quarter but they were the first to score. Hernani's shot from long range took a deflection off Samir's heel and beat Nicolas. Samir made up for it only moments later, once again he was given a free header from a corner kick and this time he made no mistake, once again it was Brugman who was marking him. Parma looked much better in the second half, they had quite a bit of possession, though a lot of their passing was sideways and backwards. One of those passes was from Yasmin Kurtic that was intended for Stefano Okaka but instead went straight to Roberto Pereira, his cross deflected off of Jacoponi and into his own goal. This match was very much a game of swings and both sides scoring against the run of play. That's how Parma equalized, Jan Karamo timed his run perfectly to get behind Oyan and Samir. Unfortunately for Parma fans, the dagger struck with only a few minutes to play. Okaka used his big body to hold up play before laying off to Pusetto. He received the ball really well and picked his corner from well outside the box to give Udinese the 3-2 win. That's a huge 3 points for Udinese. 
For Parma, it's still early days, but things are looking pretty bleak. I picked Udinese as the third team to be relegated, and they managed to beat Parma, so Parma could well be the third relegation club. Finally, Genoa drew Verona 0-0 on Monday. Genoa fielded a depleted squad that hadn't trained much due to COVID. Despite the scoreline, this was actually a pretty high-tempo match. Verona were the much better side in the first half, but they were really missing the decisive finishing of Samuel Di Carmine. Even though Verona dominated the play, Genoa still tested Silvestri. He made saves on Radovanovic and Goran Pandev in the first half. Mattia Perin had an excellent match at the other end. This was his first match since recovering from COVID, though he only missed one match because of the international break. He made a brilliant save on Abri Macaulay after Leonard Sesbora's failed clearance allowed Colley to break. There was a point in the second half where it seemed Verona just had corner after corner after corner. They finished with 14 corner kicks in total and nothing to show for it, so I'm sure that's something that even Juric will be working on in training. Nikola Kalinic made his Verona debut in the 60th minute, but he too was not able to score the much-needed goal. For Genoa, the ageless Goran Panda was really the only player on Genoa that created anything, but at the end of the day, this was a huge point for Genoa, who like I said was nowhere near full capacity. Verona, on the other hand, will be very disappointed with the result, considering how one-sided this match was. So that's our recap of match day 4. In part 3, we'll preview Napoli's upcoming match in the Europa League against AZ Alkmaar. Part 3, we're going to review Napoli's Europa League fixture on Thursday against AZ Alkmaar. This match is at the San Paolo at 6.55pm local time, which is 12.55 Eastern time. There was some doubt about whether this match would be played. Last week, Alkmaar had 9 people test positive, 3 of whom have since tested negative. Then on Tuesday, Alkmaar confirmed that they have an additional 8 positive cases, bringing the current total to 13. Most people who have tested positive are asymptomatic. Nevertheless, Alkmaar confirmed that unless they are stopped by the local authorities, they will attend the match with a squad of 17 players. So we'll preview this match on the assumption that it is played on Thursday. I want to start with a little background on Alkmaar. If you don't follow the Eredivisie, then you probably don't know much about them. I certainly didn't prior to working on this preview. Last season, Alkmaar were tied in first with Ajax on 56 points when the Eredivisie and its clubs decided to abandon the season. The rankings at the time were used to determine who would qualify for the Champions League and who would qualify for the Europa League. Based on the Eredivisie's UEFA coefficient, the top two teams qualify for the second round of the Champions League qualification. Alkmaar defeated Czech club Viktoria Polzen to advance to the third round, where they squared off against league rivals Dinamo Kiev. The winner of that match would advance to the Champions League playoff, while the loser, along with all the other losers in the third round, 
would enter into the Europa League group stage. Dinamo Kiev won 2-0, so Alkmaar were relegated to the Europa League, so that's how they got to this point. Next, let's talk about the 2020-2021 campaign, which hasn't started too well for Alkmaar. They're currently sitting in 10th position, having drawn all four of their matches so far. Moreover, these draws were not even against the top clubs in the league. The highest ranked team they've played is VV Vivenlo, who is currently in 9th place. They also drew PEC Zwolle, who are in 11th, and Fortuna Sittard and Sparta Rotterdam, who are the two bottom teams in the table. So that brings us to the starting lineups. It's pretty difficult to predict Alkmaar's starting 11, as the club has not released the names of the players who tested positive for privacy reasons. However, they did release the squad list, so we'll have to rely on that combined with their recent matches to try to cobble together a lineup. Alkmaar used a 4-2-3-1 formation as well. Their regular keeper, Marco Bizo started Alkmaar's first three matches, but did not start their most recent one. However, he is in the squad list, which suggests perhaps he was one of the players who originally contracted coronavirus, but has since recovered. Bizo played in 24 of Alkmaar's 26 matches last season, so unless he's not fit to play after being off for a while, I expect him to start. At the back, Owen Vindal should start at left back, and Jonas Svensson should start at right back. Timo Leschert started every match at centre-back except the last, and he's not in the squad, so most likely he tested positive. Ramon Liuin should start in his place, alongside Pantelis Chatsidiakos. Frederick Mitzio and Tiyun Kuhnmeiners are the regular starters in the double pivot, and both are in the squad. Alkmaar have rotated their wingers quite a bit, so they shouldn't miss Zakaria Abu-Klau too much. I expect to see Jesper Carlsen start at left wing, and Calvin Stengs to start on the right wing. Albert Goodmanson is another option at wing, but he may need to start at striker as Alkmaar's top goalscorer, Myron Boadu, is not in the squad. He played for Alkmaar on Saturday, so he must have been one of the players who recently tested positive. Last season, Boadu scored 14 goals in 24 appearances in the Eredivisie, and he added 4 goals in 7 Europa League appearances. This season, he already has 2 goals in 4 matches. Danny DeWitt will start in the number 10. He's off to an excellent start to the 2020-2021 campaign. In four appearances this season, he's already matched his goal tally of three goals from all of last season. Napoli's starting 11 is somewhat difficult to predict as well. I suspect that Tuzo will rotate his squad quite a bit. Between Serie A and the Europa League, Napoli played three matches in the span of nine days. As we saw after the restart last season, with games so close together, Gattuso will rotate, but he will not turn over the entire squad. I expect Alex Madet to get the starting goal. At the back, I think we might finally see Mario Rui in the starting 11. Either Giovanni Di Lorenzo or Elsie Kisai will start at right back. I think whoever doesn't start this match would start against Benevento on the weekend. At center back, I can't see Gattuso changing both center backs. Koulibaly and Manolas both have plenty of European experience, so I think one of them will start. I'm going to guess it will be Koulibaly. I'm pretty confident that we'll see Maksimovic start beside him. Koulibaly and Maksimovic played really well together after the restart. In the double pivot, I think Fabian Ruiz has to start with Zielinski and Elmas still positive, and I think Diego Deme will start beside him since Bakayoko started on Saturday. Up top, I think we'll see Chucky Lozano on the left and Matteo Politano on the right. Insignia should be in the lineup, but he won't start. As Gattuso said in his pre-match conference, Insignia hasn't played in 20 days, so he still needs to put some fuel in his legs. As we saw against Atalanta, Fauzi Gulam and Kevin Malqui will likely serve as the backup wingers. Finally, I think we'll see Dries Mertens start in the number 10 spot behind Andrea Petania. That also makes you wonder whether Gattuso will stick with the 4-2-3-1 without Osimhen in the lineup, or go back to the 4-3-3. 
I'm inclined to think that Gattuso sticks to the 4-2-3-1. For my prediction, I'm going to give Napoli a 4-0 win on goals from Mertens, Lozano, and a brace from Petania. We know that Gattuso takes every match seriously, so I'm expecting Napoli to come prepared for this one. We're coming off a strong performance against Atalanta at the San Paolo, where this match is being played. Meanwhile, Alkmaar have been struggling to get results, and that certainly has not been helped by the increase in positive tests lately. While Alkmaar have most of their regular starters available, they're going to need their wingers and Danny DeWitt to step up and score in Myron Badu's absence. We also know that Alkmaar have a thin squad consisting of 16 outfield players and 3 keepers. As is often the case, Napoli tend to improve over time because of the depth we have in the squad. That advantage is even greater this season with 5 substitutions permitted in European competitions. So that's our preview of Napoli versus Alkmaar. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ForzaNapoliPod. We'll talk to you again after the match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Network.